If you can imagine with me the ideal circumstance of a baby being born, and we're going to imagine the ideal circumstance, I believe it's God intended of a baby being born to two parents that love that baby. Imagine a baby is born, nine months in the womb, handed to mom. What great joy goes into that event. And the baby comes out. And does the baby immediately look at mom and think to itself, can I trust you? No. Babies don't come out immediately skeptical about mom or dad. They come out with trust. And why does it work that way? Because for nine months, give or take, they have had that trust built up within them as they've been nourished and taken care of. So that when they're now in the outside world and they're handed over to mom or dad, they've heard the voices, they've felt the warmth, and now they know, this is a person I can trust. That's a portrait of faith, of how faith works. Often faith, and we're talking faith belief this morning, they're really interchangeable terms. When we talk about faith, often people don't define clearly what they mean, and sometimes they mean a thing called blind faith, which isn't a real thing. That's something else. That's not actually faith. Faith, by its very nature, is founded on precedent, on something that's historically happened, either to you or somebody else, that you can build on. That's how faith works. I know something happened in the past, therefore I can believe something like it will happen in the future. Anything less than that is not faith, it's a wish or something else in a different category. And so that portrait of a baby is a great example of what faith is supposed to be like, what we mean when we say that word faith or belief. I know for nine months I was taking care of the baby doesn't consciously think this, but they know that, and now they come out, I know that I will be taken care of. Something would have to change, something would have to get disrupted, in order for that trust to be broken. And I say this because as we talk about belief this morning, and we're going to turn to Mark 5 in just a moment, and I do encourage you to find that, follow along with Mark 5, starting at verse 21 in just a little bit. We are by nature, I think humans, by nature, God has designed us to be believing people. People who have a faith in something. That doesn't mean it's all right to have a faith in just anything, but we're always believing something. Faith is our default status. And yet, we're led to believe in our environments that we live in that our default status ought to be skepticism. The skepticism is a neutral position. I'm not going to believe it until you prove it to me. And that skepticism is sort of like we, we're, we're not, we don't believe one thing or the other. You've got to prove it to me. And skepticism is considered a virtue quite often. Now, I'm not saying that skepticism is all bad. But we're all skeptical in some way. But let me just point out this morning the obvious truth if you tease it out. Skepticism is built on faith. The reason we would doubt one thing and be skeptical is because we believe something else. We have a faith built in something. But we act as if it's this neutral position. That we don't believe anything until you prove it. But I want to tell you this morning, we're going to look at Jesus. And Jesus talks to two different people in this passage in Mark. And he says, believe. And something happens when they do that. And so the point I want to make, and this is good news, I believe, this morning, and I hope you're with me, is that when you believe, Jesus can fix what sin has broken in you. Jesus can start to restore that skepticism. Jesus can start to restore that misdirected belief 
Jesus can start to put together what sin has broken within us. Now, before you check out on me, thinking I'm only going to talk about physical healing or do a faith healing this morning, hold on. I'm not going there. Before you check out on me, thinking I'm going to be preaching some kind of uh, faith by works, just put that off to the side, because I would never preach that. I don't believe that, nor should you. This morning, I want us to recognize that Jesus calls us to come to him. And he's calling us right now because there's something broken inside of all of us. And we all know it. And Jesus can begin that restoration process when we come to him. And I want to point out this. If you follow Jesus, that restoration process has already begun. You're already living it out in some big or small way already. And if you're hearing this this morning, still not sure what it is that I'm going to say about this, whether you follow Jesus or not, can I ask you to just dial back the skepticism a little bit and just let the words and the story of Jesus healing two people, in fact, perhaps even more than two if we think about it, wash over you this morning. Be open and ready to receive the word. And let's read Mark 5, 21 through 43. That's not going to be on the screen. It's a long passage so I'm going to ask you to hang with me, but we're evangelicals, we can do it. So, it says, starting at verse 21 of chapter 5 in Mark, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. He's been doing a lot of ministry around this area, and now he's probably on the north or the west edge of the Sea of Galilee. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. By the way, wouldn't it be great if we all had such integrity of character? Look at that. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. When Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus, said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. 
After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. As we consider this passage, there's a lot to take in there and an awful lot that we could do with it. We can't get to the fullness of it today. But let's recognize that we have our main characters are two diff very different people. All the Jesus, the woman, Jairus, they're all Jewish. They're all within a Jewish culture in a small community around the Sea of Galilee. This woman would have been very far removed from Jairus, who would have been very important. She would have been almost unnoticed in the community. And we'll talk about her more in a moment. But there are some commonalities between their story when they come to Jesus. What you have first and foremost are two desperate people. And you can hear the desperation in the story, can't you? They're two very desperate people. Uh, Mark 5.23, you can hear the emotion when Jairus comes. It says, he pleaded earnestly with him, my daughter is dying Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. In fact, read it out loud later. You'll feel the emotion in you. I just did right now. You can sense this father coming, heartbroken. I'm going to lose one of the most precious things to me. Jesus, can you help? And he's desperate. He's probably, Jairus is probably a very important man in the community. He's a lay leader in the synagogue as far as we can tell, not a priest. He's probably akin as far as importance within his community to someone like the mayor or the city council, something like that. This is an important person within the framework of the community. He's taking a risk to his stature, perhaps to his integrity, perhaps to his reputation by coming to Jesus. Because as you'll, if you read on, and we'll get to this story next week, Jesus goes to his hometown in a little bit. They don't like Jesus in his hometown. Who does this guy think he is, right? Not everybody receives Jesus. Same story today, even in our day and age. Not everybody receives Jesus with open arms. Some people think he's quite threatening. So he's taken a step out there as one of the sort of religious elite. And you can also hear in his words, can you put your hand on my daughter and heal her? The word is sozo in Greek which has a broader meaning than he's using it. it. It can mean salvation. It can simply mean heal. It can mean restore her health, right? That's the, the breadth of where it can go. It can go to the fullness, restore the fullness of her. He seems to have this idea of just heal her physically. She's dying. And you get the impression as the story goes on that if she dies, all hope is lost. So while she's alive, heal her, Jesus. That's what's packaged in that term. These are two desperate people. And the second thing about it, which we've already gotten to with Jairus, is that they're both taking a risk. Maybe Jairus is more to his reputation or his, uh, uh, the stature in his community, sure. For the woman, she's taking a risk. According to Leviticus 19, uh, she would have been ritually impure because of her bleeding. And because it had been going on for 12 years, for 12 years she had been ritually impure which means she couldn't participate in the most important parts of life in Israel. She certainly couldn't participate in anything at the temple in Jerusalem. She probably couldn't participate in anything at the synagogue because she's ritually impure. She, that means that she's cut off from everything that matters in the community. I mean, imagine to yourself if you couldn't go to church. 
Now, also imagine to yourself, if you were talking to this woman, and we live in a day and age when people are like, oh, this week I don't feel like going to church, and you said that to her, who's cut off because of ritual impurity. How astounding that would be to her. Imagine, though, you were cut off from church, you're cut off from work, you're cut off from all social gatherings. That's who she is. She can't go to anything. She can't be around other people who are pure. She would have to stick around people who are ritually impure. She's practically a leper, practically speaking, in her culture. And worse than that, she's a contaminant. So if she touches anybody else, they're ritually impure. If she sits on anything or, or lays on anything, that thing is ritually impure. And anybody who comes into contact with that is ritually impure for a time. So when she goes into a crowd, she's taking a big risk or potentially making other people ritually impure, which could make them very upset at her. It's a big deal. The third thing I'd point out about them that they have in common is they both believe Jesus can. They both believe Jesus has the power to do something within their life to heal or restore what's broken. They clearly have their limits, I think especially for Jairus and his crowd, in what that could be, but they both believe. And we can point out that their belief is based on what's already happened for others. Because Jesus has been healing in this region around the Sea of Galilee back in Mark 3, just two chapters ago. Crowds are coming to him. He's healing people. He's exercising demons. He's already been doing this. Word is obviously traveling because crowds press around him when he goes to this new region of the Sea of Galilee. They must have heard of what Jesus was doing. There's faith there. We've seen it done. We believe it could be done here. That's faith. That's belief. And belief matters if we're going to partake of what Jesus is offering. One of the great and early statements uh, of the Christian faith is the creed from Romans 10:9 that says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. See, Jesus has already done the work on the cross for us, but it still takes our belief to accept that work in our own lives. So it's not faith by works by any means, right? We didn't do anything to earn it, but we get to receive the benefit. It's not universalism, by the way, just because Jesus did it, we all get it. No, we have to believe it. We have to take hold of it. You're not just saved just by virtue of the fact that Jesus did something. You have to believe. You have to take hold of this faith. And you can see then, back in Mark 5, verse 34... Jesus looks at the woman. He says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. What remarkable words those must have been to her. What a freeing moment for her. And we have to disconnect this idea that just because Jesus did it or just because Jesus has the power, it doesn't require something from us. Just a couple weeks ago, uh, I had a serious infection and I slept for a week. My body just said, nope, you're not getting up. You're done. And I was out. And uh, as I was kind of half awake, half asleep, uh, it, I had some movies on every so often in the background. I was watching Raiders of the Lost Ark. Um, and then I was also watching Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I skipped the middle one, because why would we waste our time with that one? But if you watch both of those movies, you see that the belief in the movies is that the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy Grail both have power in and of themselves. That the Ark of the Covenant must have been magically made by God and brought down from heaven, and whatever army has that in their power will be the most powerful army in the world. But it has no inherent power of its own. It only stands as a symbol of God's power. 
with those who believe. Right? So we can't just assume that if we have uh, Jesus saying, I have this power, that we're going to be able to partake of that just by nature. We have to believe. We have to partake. We have to receive what Jesus is offering. Jesus also looks at Jairus in verse 36. He says, don't be afraid. Just believe. How hard are those words probably for Jairus at that moment to receive? But in both of these moments, for both of these people, their faith is taken from what they thought Jesus could do and stretched beyond. Stretched beyond the limits of what they thought could happen. And so I want to ask a couple questions of sort of the implications for us as we think about what Jesus did and then consider what Jesus could do in our own lives. They're very related questions to the text, very related questions to one another. The first is, do you dare approach Jesus? I mean, do you dare approach Jesus and take your real human needs and concerns to the rabbi for restoration and healing? Because we've all got things that need to be taken care of. And some people won't approach. In fact, quite often without realizing it, we won't take some of our real human needs to Jesus. We might not approach Jesus because we actually lack humility without realizing it. Right? There's a lot of pride that goes on in us. So when we're, when we're challenged, and by the way, when we go to the table today, I will challenge us to go and approach the master with our real human needs. And I'll guide us through that. But as we approach, we aren't aware. Or we have pr so much pride sometimes in us, we think, well, nothing really needs to be fixed, so we take frivolous things to Jesus. Things that are small. Wants, not needs, to Jesus. And it's not that Jesus is unconcerned about those. It's just often there are deeper things that need to be addressed underneath those things. We sometimes won't go when we lack humility, and we won't go before Jesus because we're entitled, whether we know it or not. We have a sense within us when things happen around us and bad things happen, we think, I didn't expect, fill in the blank. I don't deserve, fill in the blank, for this to happen to me because, or this should never happen to me for this reason. We have this idea that we're entitled, that we have these rights that God has infringed upon when God has actually given us the gift of all good things, not the right to all good things. And we have to realize what God has given us. So sometimes we lack humility without realizing it. That pride prevents us from going before the king. Some of us won't approach because we lack esteem. We lack self-esteem. We lack the concern that, of the belief that God cares. That Jesus would even be a little bit concerned about our needs. Jesus doesn't really have time for me. God's too busy doing other things. Or even worse... I'm too far gone for Jesus to do anything. But if you notice the shape of what happens in the story and the way Mark reveals it to us, what's the center point of the story? It's the woman with no name. Jairus is the bookends, his story. The center point is this woman with no name who matters. What a giant contrast. She matters so much to Jesus this social outcast that he stops while he's helping one of the most powerful people around and he looks at her 
he says, and gives her attention. He says, your faith has made you well. You matter. So the second thing, some people won't come then because they actually don't believe. Right? Do you dare approach Jesus with the real human needs? Do you dare believe Jesus actually could do anything with them? Is the related question. That Jesus has any real power to change anything in your real life. That restoration is, even, is indeed possible for the things that are broken. See, this woman, if you look at her, she was so ritually impure. She's a social outcast. She's contaminated. She's at the very edge of society, almost unnoticed, except Jesus notices her. Jesus gives her attention and dignity and worth, as she should have, gifts from God. But what happens when we encounter that kind of impurity and that kind of brokenness in our world today? What's our reaction right now to difficult issues like this where restoration is needed? We tend to try and change the goalposts right now to move them. We try and change the rules. We try and say that the impure is actually pure and the unclean is actually clean. That way we can cope with it. That way we can deal with it. Because sometimes we don't believe Jesus actually can. But what does Jesus do here? He doesn't look at her and say, you know what? Leviticus 19, that's thousand-year-old thinking. We need to move beyond that. What does he say? What does he do? Jesus doesn't advocate for a change in moral or ritual law in order to fix the problem. He reverses the curse. That's the good news. He says the law was there, and it was there so you could walk with God. It was there to also show you where you weren't walking with God and where, where you were unholy. But guess what? I've come to solve all those things, if you'll just believe. If you'll just walk towards me and receive what I have to offer, restoration is there. And we can see then that Jesus expands for us that idea of healing. Jairus used it in a very narrow sense. The same word is used all throughout the New Testament, that sozo word. And in Hebrews 7.25, using that same word, it says, therefore he, Jesus, is able to save how much? Completely. Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. That restoration is bigger than we can imagine. That's why when I said, don't count me out, that you think I'm going to do a faith healing or something like that at the end, Jesus can do that, and indeed does do that in our day and age. However, it happens less in a skeptical culture, we might note. But it's much beyond that, too, what Jesus is offering. See, we have to recognize that we all believe something. When Jesus says believe to them, he's trying to redirect what they believe where their belief is. We all believe, even the most skeptical among us, believe something. That's why we're skeptical when we are. The question is, where is your faith? In what direction is your belief pointed? Jesus is offering them a clear guide and offering us a clear guide as well. And the results of that belief are remarkable for these two people. So I want to suggest to you that when you believe, Jesus can actually restore your life. Jesus can begin the transformation process of what's broken by sin, and we all know something is, or multiple things are in our lives, and begin that restoration process now. And it might go beyond the physical, it might be the physical, it might be all kinds of things. But think about this. Jairus' daughter was healed. What do you think Jesus' word did, did for Jairus, and Jesus' actions did for Jairus in, in his healing, in his life? I know uh, years ago I had somebody pray for our middle daughter, um, who, who, for healing for her. And I remember 
In that moment, no physical healing discernibly happened, but my spirit, which had been skeptical, was healed. I needed Jesus to reach in and actually heal me and put my belief back in the right direction, and indeed there was a restoration that began. What do you think it did for Jairus when Jesus raises his daughter? Where do you think his belief went from that point on? Healing doesn't have to be just physical. Jairus' daughter was brought back to life. That's an incredible thing. Jairus is brought to believe what he heard. Look at the woman. She's not simply restored physically. She now has the opportunity to be restored to community and to relationship. So where do you need restoration? Where do you need to approach the master? Where do you need to bring those real human needs to him that that restoration can begin? For some of us, it is physical. For some of us, it is emotional. For some of us, it's relational. For some of us, it's spiritual. Some of us are angry with God. And we need to present that to the master. Say, I'm angry. I'm hurt. I'm frustrated. I'm grieving. God's big enough to deal with that. God's big enough to take it in and begin the restoration process and walk with us if we just believe. The second thing I want to point out is that when you believe, your restoration can impact others' ability to believe. You can testify, not just be transformed, but testify to those around you. Mark chapter 3 Jesus has been healing. The effects of that are that by Mark chapter 5, people have heard about that healing, and a woman who suffered bleeding for 12 years, and a man whose daughter is dying, and crowds all come to Jesus believing that he can do something for them on the faith, on that belief that it's happened before, maybe it'll happen again. Mark 6, 56, Jesus is wandering around. And it says, And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to touch even the edge of his cloak. And all who touched it were healed. Does that sound familiar? That's what just happened. And it's what just happened before that. The word was spreading. The faith of those who came and believed now is spreading. And they testify to others what Jesus can do. Your belief might bring restoration to those who lack hope. Isn't that a good thing this morning? Isn't that a remarkable thing? That Jesus reaching into our lives, when we approach the master for that restoration, when we take our real human needs and say, yes, Jesus, I believe you can, that that can impact other people to do the same thing. Because some of us have been blessed with a deep reservoir of hope. We've got a faith that's miles long behind us. And some people don't. They're filled with skepticism and doubt and questions. And they, don't, they either can't see or they've never seen what Jesus could. And what Jesus could do if only they would believe. And by our transformation, we can be a testimony to those people. To help build their faith and give them a deep reservoir of hope. When you believe Jesus can fix what is broken in you, and Jesus does, we simply need to approach the king. We need to come before him 
and truth, recognizing that something needs to be fixed within us, dropping that, you know, that pretense of pride and being humble before him, recognizing that we matter, just like the woman mattered. But we don't matter too much, just like Jairus. He could wait for Jairus and say, I can fix both these problems. If we just put them in perspective, he can fix what's broken.